0: They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. From Isaiah 60, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar." And I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And this morning we ask that you would give us just once more a little glimpse of what is to come, what is happening that is outside uh, our normal purview so that we can see we can taste and see how good you truly are through all that you've done in your son and it's in his name we pray amen well uh two weeks ago although i said it was going to be the last sermon on the revelation series i couldn't stick to that so just just bear with me one more week to consider something really, really significant. I actually wanted to talk about this two weeks ago. I just couldn't fit it all in. It was going to be way too long. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 24 in Revelation 21, where it says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And verse 26, They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And this is a verse that's just easy to just read over, but I want us to just really reflect on this uh, together this morning. Because just think about it. What are we actually bringing in? What are these kings bringing in to the city of God? Our glory, splendor, it's a tribute to God. What are we actually being bringing? What's being brought in? And what you begin to realize is if you think about these words, and the reason I have exited, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 60 in here as well, is because that is a deliberate echo of Isaiah chapter 60. And Richard Mao, who is former president of Fuller Seminary, wrote a whole book comparing Revelation 21 verse 24 with Isaiah 60, and it's entitled, When the Kings Come Marching In. And in that book, he makes the case that the vision of the kings bringing their tributes into the heavenly city provides a pattern for our cultural involvement in the world today. It actually helps us to think about how we are to work, how we are to live, how we think about culture. So when the text says the kings of the earth are marching in or entering in, These kings represented all the different cultures of the world because the nations, the Greek word for nation is ethne, and all of their unique contributions are the wealth of the nations. So the kings represented people from every tribe and nation drawn into the city of God, bringing their offerings, their glory, their honor, their treasure. And he says this vision has the power to transform how we understand ourselves, our work, and our neighbors. The things we do on a daily basis, things that are good and beautiful, are taken up into the city of God. And that's what I want us to reflect on together this morning because I think there's a lot there. Think about how much time you actually spend working. I mean, that's a good chunk of our lives. And maybe you've often asked the question, what is this all for? What am I doing all this for? Is it just for the money? Is it just for things? And I think those are questions that continue to haunt us throughout our lives because we're trying to figure out, hey, if our eyes as Christians are to be focused on the victory of Jesus and the gospel in itself, there has to be an implication for what we do in our work and our culture. And the Bible says there absolutely is. So let's just go back and think about where we are headed again the city of God, because this is the final end of history. And if you were not here, we are told in Revelation, this is where all of human history is going. And the end of history ends up at the city of God, a new heavens and a new earth being brought down from heaven. And we begin to notice something. If the story of the scriptures tell us it begins actually in paradise, in a pristine garden. Human history actually ends up, not again in a garden, but in a city that is made up of stuff of human culture and work and technology, although it comes down from God. And a city usually bustles with activity, does it not? And when we looked at Revelation 21 two weeks ago, we went into detail about some of those aspects because we saw the Apostle John describe his vision in this way. He talks about the materials the city was made of, the measurements of the city. Do you remember this? That it was measured in 12,000 stadia, which is massive. And he describes an unshakable foundation that the city is built on, magnificent gates of pearl. It's made out of pearl. In fact, it tells us the city is made also of a variety of precious stones and gold, And one of the things that I found really interesting is if you go to Genesis chapter 2, back to the garden, there's a mention of gold and onyx, which are also precious stones and, you know, precious stuff that the city of God is actually made of. But only then it was just ore or stone buried in the earth. And now it has been mined out. It's been melted down. It's been cut and polished and set in place in the city of God. And, it, and John goes on to describe how the names of the 12 sons of Israel are inscribed on the gates. Remember that? And the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus are chiseled into the foundation. And why does this matter? You know? why is there this continuity of what happened in this life and in this new city of god where these things are chiseled in because their stories matter there is something about the drama of human history where the concrete names of these people tell us about something that god is doing and he wants this permanently commemorated in his city the story of god in history rescuing a people for himself is chiseled in commemorated because it is the story of god's redemption and as we said two weeks ago it's not the story of those people being amazing people you know exemplary people that we are to follow as examples of faith they failed in so many ways so the story is really about god's grace And the story of the Bible ends in this place where everywhere you turn, whether it's names chiseled in, but in every corner of this city, our new home, we find the presence of our human work, culture, history, somehow mysteriously all incorporated into that final destination. And maybe you're asking, why does this matter in the end? Because if that's true, if what the Bible tells us is actually true, our final destination is a restored world that it's embodied, that we're going to have resurrected bodies and all things are made new. Not that we get new things, okay? But the things we have are being renewed. And if that is our final destination, it's a city rich with history, culture, art, human civilization if that is all true then you know what your work matters eternally it really does I mean it's an incredible idea and it addresses in one sense our deep search for meaning that we engage in all the time through our work and I have a quote in the front of your bulletin from Ernest Becker and from the book Escape from Evil And he says this, what man really fears is not so much extinction, but extinction with insignificance. Man wants to know that his life has somehow counted. If not for himself, then at least in a large scheme of things that it has left a trace, a trace that has meaning. And in order for anything once alive to have meaning, its effects must remain alive in eternity in some way. And maybe, for some of us here, we've been asking this question that's been nagging. I mean, what becomes of my life? What about all the things I've done? When it dies, does it just disappear? It becomes all meaningless? And to a degree, I think that question is one that we ask and oftentimes haunts us. And the Bible says, let me tell you how all this works. Let me tell you how your work actually matters. You know, uh, Dan Ariely teaches behavioral economics at Duke University. He's the author of Predictably Irrational, which was pretty popular about a decade plus ago. And he studies what motivates people. And he's interested in what is it besides money that gets people to care about the work they do and to work hard even when the incentives aren't as obvious as like a lot of money at the end of the rainbow or some fame or something else. So he came up with this experiment with Legos. Bionicles, actually, to be specific. All right. So he got a bunch of college students together to participate. They're sorted into two groups. Group one. So they tell you, we'll pay you like $5 to put together a Bionicle. And this is the research project. And after you finish one, you were asked, Would you like to build another one? But for a diminished wage. That is, you know, for the second one, you don't get five dollars, you'll get four seventy-five. And then for the third one, you won't get four seventy-five but four fifty. And the experiment just keeps going until you just say, I don't want to do anymore. Okay? And when they're finished, you're left with these bionicles that you've built put together right in front of you. Group two, same exact experiment. But Here's what they do. After you finish your first bionicle and you start on the next one, the researcher in the room takes the bionicle you just built, okay? Disassembles it in front of you, puts it back in the box it came from, and when you finish the second one, gives you the box and asks you, would you like to build it again for a diminished rate? It's so cruel, you know? (laughs) Like, I... You get the same amount of money, but you just build that thing, and they take it apart. And you know what they discovered after running this experiment? Those who were able to leave their bionicles on their desks just to look at, even for the short period of time that they worked on it, were able to produce something like 40% more bionic figures. I mean, why? Simply. Simply based on the fact that their work would last even if it was only for a couple of hours. Now, if that's true, just for Lego figures, I mean, imagine what our lives are like as we give years and decades to our work. And in the end, we ask ourselves, will this last? Will this get demand, uh, you know, disassembled by the, right before our eyes? Some of you have experienced this at work where you may have put in hundreds of hours on a project Six months, eight months into it, and that project is canceled, and it never saw the light of day. I utterly depressing for that whole team. Perhaps you were trying to put together a deal, and you're working on slide deck after slide deck, putting together all the things your principals are asking for, and then again, that deal is canceled. I mean, it's this sense that, wait, what was the purpose of all of this? Because I think for every single one of us, we need to know that our work matters in some impactful way, that it made a difference. And in the end, the Bible says, the end of human history, all of our work, by the grace and mercy of God, will be incorporated in the new heavens and the new earth, and it's going to matter. And I don't know of another worldview, another religion, another religion, that can come close to saying that to us and to give that kind of dignity to the work that we spend so much of our lives actually doing. But do you begin to see when the kings are bringing these treasures in, this is what it is. And this is my second point. As we look at Isaiah 60, what is the wealth of the nations? What is this glory and honor that the kings are bringing in from the nations. And you begin to notice something here because this is a vision Isaiah has hundreds of years before John has his vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah is describing it. But he does so with great specificity and particular cultural riches that caught his eyes. So what do we read about? The wealth of the nations that are coming or what? You hear about camels coming from Midian. Gold and frankincense from Sheba. Sheep coming from Kedar. Rams that are coming from Nebaioth and from Tarshish. You have ships bringing silver and gold. It keeps going on to the cedars of Lebanon being brought into the city. And you know what you realize when you list all of these things out? What are they? They're commercial goods from the various cultures that are being brought into this new Jerusalem, the city of God. And you begin to understand, Isaiah 60 is describing something. These commercial goods represented the economies of the neighboring nations of Israel. And every single one of these nations, they do what? They worship foreign gods. They were also a source of economic and military power and a threat to Israel themselves. And it's these cultural goods, their economy and their power that pose such a threat to them are now somehow through God's grace are purged and transformed into something beautiful and brought into God's city. It's a remarkable thing. And this is contrasted with what we saw earlier in Revelation chapter 18, because that is when Babylon, the city of man, was judged by God you remember this let me just read you a few verses of what happened to the city of man in verse 10 it says alas alas you great city you mighty city babylon for in a single hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore And let me read verse uh, 21 and following. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Do you understand what's going on here in the judgment of the city of man? As they tried to build this thing that gave them significance and worth apart from God, they did it with their own hands and God judges it And every one of their economic things they were so proud of is no more. There's no more culture. Their music is gone. The craftsmen, the things they built, all gone. No one wanted to buy any more of their iPhones or computers or anything else, okay? Or jewelry. All gone. No no longer exists. It was brought under the judgment of God. But here in the new Jerusalem, what do we begin to see? God brings something down to us as a gift, not as something that man has built as their achievement. And it's important to note in the passage here, the city, this city where all our wounds are healed, the city where all our tears are wiped away, the city where all of our swords are beaten into plowshares, right? A city where God's presence is real and healing. It only comes down from heaven. It comes down to us. It's not something that the work of our hands could ever achieve. And yet, mysteriously, it incorporates the wealth of the nations. The things that we have produced. Things that were symbols of worldly strength and power. Symbols of things that were a threat to the people of God things that we put our hope and aspirations into, it enters into this new Jerusalem, purified, transformed. I mean, this is why the camels and the sheep now what? Proclaim the praise of the Lord in Isaiah 60. The flocks and the rams are now what? Beautifying the temple, okay? The ships, these pagan ships, are now bringing silver and gold to honor the God of Israel. Israel. Everything has been transformed here. And it's this beautiful vision of the one true God that made all of the nations gathering in all of their beauties and the riches and the things they have produced into his own city. It's a remarkable image. And you know what this means for us? Because maybe you're asking, I'm not sure what the connection is. You know, when we find ourselves in the city of God at the end of history and we find our faith in Jesus Christ and we find ourselves there, you know what? If you're a shepherd, what does that mean? Your work matters. What if you were a miner digging for precious metals? Your work mattered. What if you were a sailor? transporting goods and maybe we can just say truck driver your work mattered if you're a craftsman or jeweler an artist musician scientist coder i don't know maybe you'll bring in your macbook somehow and it makes all sense i don't know but your work matters i mean god's saying i'm making all things new that includes our work Anthony Hokema wrote an essay in Christianity Today some years ago, and it was entitled, Heaven, Not Just an Eternal Day Off. And he says this, We will retain our unique gifts. These gifts will develop and mature in a sinless way, and will be used to produce new cultural products to the everlasting glory of God's name. I love that. Your unique gifts will remain with you in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's going to develop and mature in a sinless ways, And you're going to produce. And you're going to do things to the everlasting glory of God's name. And what a beautiful image that is. Because the work of our hands actually matter. But not only that, we are actually bringing in the riches of our culture as well. That there is glory and beauty in all of our ethnic differences. Riches that are forged in your specific ethnic experience. These are treasures that God is going to bring back to himself. He intends to bring back. And you know what this means? That no matter what your ethnic or racial background is, whether you're biracial, whether you're white or black, Latino or Asian, the Bible is telling us that the very riches of God have been intentionally, purposefully embedded in your cultural experience so that you, when you come into the city of God, will have glory to bear for the blessing of others and for the glory of God. Beautiful vision. I mean, this is why the church today is called always to be straining to better reflect and embody this ethnic, multi-ethnic vision. Because it's a foretaste of the final city of God. It's meant to be a community. We may do it imperfectly that always strives to see the riches of these things brought into a community that worships God. And so that's what we're bringing. I mean, think about this. Think about that's where we're headed and that's what we're meant to be. You know? And uh, I don't know. I mean, perhaps that, you know, I I remember uh, a film, you know, a long time ago that I still, it's one of these films, if it comes on TV, I'll leave on in the background because I just enjoy watching it. Do you remember my big fat Greek wedding? And do you remember when the main character She's going to school for the first time, and she brings her lunch. And the kids are like, oh, what is that, you know? And she's the weird kid that has to go to Greek school on Saturdays. And she has has all of these things that are just, she's so self-conscious about her own culture and her background. And it reminds me of every other movie that's kind of like this, whether it's like Bend It Like Beckham or your name, a whole slew of these. But, you know, for anyone who's ever felt like that, Some sort of outsider culturally, ethnically, where you don't fit. You know what this passage begins to tell you? There is something beautiful that God has placed in your experience that he is going to bring out like a jewel. And he's telling you that is the kingdom of heaven. That every single person has a place there that our individuality is not erased in the kingdom of heaven, but it's enhanced and beautified and purified to bring out the beauty of all things. I mean, imagine how awesome the food's going to be in heaven, you know? You start thinking about all the different cultural things, all the things we love, the music, the art, the different languages you'll hear perhaps in your years all the things that are the best parts of our ethnic experiences and culture are brought to God as a gift. And that is the vision that is being portrayed here and saying we get a foretaste of it today. It's a remarkable thing. You know, it's just not our work. But it's a lot more that's happening here. Now, you have to also understand, gosh, that sounds great, but how does it get transformed? Because we know even like things like our culture, our ethnicities, those sometimes become the source of sometimes sinful approaches and attitudes and the way we relate to people. And sometimes our work captivates our heart in such a way that we become, you know, so enamored with it, believing that it will deliver things that it was never meant to. And it becomes things that aren't actually good, but actually needs to be judged, transformed, purified. And how does all that actually take place? You know, when you go to Revelation 21, what you begin to see is what God treasures most in the city. And it's not all these treasures and these gifts that are being brought in, although they are wonderful but you know what God treasures more than anything else? He who is the Alpha and Omega, what makes his heart sing? It's not the cedars of Lebanon. It's not the ships of Tarshish. It's not the gold from Sheba. You know what it is? It's you and me. It's this idea that God is saying, I will be there. I will be your God, and you will finally be be my people that we are his treasured possession it's you with your wounds finally healed it's you with all your suffering finally redeemed it's our hearts that are finally purged of sin liberated from death itself we're finally made whole and reunited with him and that's what he delights in And when you think about how did he make that happen? How did he take something and purify it? How does this all come together? Because, you know, in Isaiah, there's this central figure that runs throughout the entire book who is known as what? The suffering servant. This figure who is willing to suffer for others. When you get to the book of Revelation, you see the Lamb of God who is seated on the throne. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And he declares from the throne, I am making all things new. I will make sure no one is ever thirsty again. That you will be with me, and you will never have to worry about any of these things. And he declares all of these things from the throne. And he can do that because there was a day when that Lamb of God was nailed to a cross, right? He died. The Alpha and Omega actually died in order to make all things new. And we saw him on the cross with a deep, deep human thirst. And he said, I thirst. Why? So that we would always be satisfied by the waters that he provides. He says, all is finally finished. I have done everything. It's been completed. You know, and you begin to realize something. If this is what it took to purify all our works, to make it beautiful, the death of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, makes all things new. and makes it beautiful. You know what you begin to realize? Hey, my work no longer needs to be the thing that gives me meaning, purpose, satisfaction. Because you know what? My name is written in the book of life. The name of God is written on my head. I have been given living water. I no longer have to feel inferior, insecure. I don't have to feel superior by my ethnicity. No, no, no. None of that matters anymore anymore. And you just get to be you, someone who belongs in the family of God. And you can now go and be freed to say, I work for God's glory. I work in order to produce something good and beautiful that is meant for the healing of the nations. You see, my friend, when you start getting this vision of what God is telling you into your bones... My goodness, it is utterly transformative. God is saying, come. Come and experience what I have here. Keep your eyes fixed on this beautiful truth. Allow this vision to transform how you begin to live your life now, how you see yourself, how you see one another, because God is making all things new. Think about that this week. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we, yeah, we come just giving you praise, giving you thanks, because all that you have done and promised is glorious. It's so beautiful and wonderful, and we give you thanks and praise for it. We ask that today as we leave here that you would make these things uh, just rest in our hearts and our minds in such a way that we would reflect on the beauty of what you have accomplished on the cross so that it begins to impact our relationships, our work, that we would be people who would go out to sing praises to you and that we would serve our neighbors well. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.